0: Hey there podcast listeners, welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. I'm your host, Terry Yuan, and this series of episodes on beauty and lifestyle is sponsored by Masami, a premium hair care brand with a unique Japanese ocean botanical called Makabu for the ultimate in botanical hydration. Masami is good for you with no bad ingredients and is vegan and cruelty free. Masami's ultra hydrating formula leaves your hair healthy, shiny, and manageable. Be sure to follow Engendered Podcast on Instagram to learn about the Masami Travel Pack giveaway. With their macabu-infused shampoo, conditioner, styling cream, and shine serum. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Marjorie Lau, a veteran beauty industry executive and co-founder of Marlow Hydroponic Skincare, the first skincare product to be grown hydroponically. Our conversation with Marjorie explores the ways in which Marlow Hydroponic Skincare offers a different choice for skincare that is rooted in and celebrates natural beauty. The message she hopes Marlow can convey to girls and women and the importance of connecting consumer choice with sustainability. Welcome, Marjorie. Thank you. Thank you for being on our show and joining us in this ongoing conversation that we're having with guests on beauty and fashion. So let's start with your background as an industry veteran. What drew you initially to beauty as an industry vertical?
1: So my background starts um, as a consumer marketer, and um, I went to a conventional consumer products company. But after a couple of years, I felt that I really wanted to work on marketing products that meant something to me. And um, beauty, obviously, was a category being female. That was interesting to me. And I was particularly interested in skincare because Skincare uh, in the beauty industry is one of those categories where you can actually talk about product features and benefits. And that was an important thing for me to be able to have as a marketeer and not just talk about a color wave or a fashion, a fleeting trend. Um, so I was looking for that kind of opportunity in the beauty industry and also marketing products that were relevant to me.
0: Well, when I was in business school, it was actually one of the industries that I was considering high fashion beauty or luxury products. But what kept me from really exploring it deeply was the stereotype that most people in the industry were women or gay men, and that there was a strong pressure within the industry to conform to white standards of beauty, which included being thin and well-dressed and always quote-unquote being fabulous. Is there any truth to that stereotype?
1: Um, it's funny that you asked this question because um one of the things that I thought about when entering the beauty industry was I was never one of those things. And being a woman of color, uh and also sort and being Asian, quite honestly, to have those stereotypes play in. I said to myself when I entered the beauty industry, I said, if I am able to be successful in this industry, I will have been able to um, validate myself as um, a successful, uh, a su- a su- a su- successful person, um, which when I think back about it, I think, you know, why did I have that kind of um, feeling about it? But it was always a situation of sort of being in a, a non-majority kind of a situation, I guess, that made me feel like that way.
0: Was there ever any either implicit or explicit expectation that you had to always look good?
1: Um, You know, I mean, being in the beauty industry, I think that that is one of those sort of um, assumed kind of propositions about it. I mean, in the beauty industry, you're selling an image. So I think that, yeah, I think that there was an expectation that you'd be able to look the role.
0: Hmm. I'm asking this because it's very noticeable to me that in the past five to 10 years that I've been working in the nonprofit field, there have been a considerable number, I would say, the majority of women that I've met or worked with, actually don't wear makeup.
1: Yes. And I think that things have changed quite remarkably since I entered the beauty industry, which was in 1992. There is a complete evolution, I think, of the beauty industry from when I entered to where we are now, which is celebrating diversity, celebrating a more natural kind of um, look, Um, celebrating and tolerating a lot of different kinds of looks and interpretation of beauty. So um, I think that things have evolved quite positively in the beauty industry since I entered it.
0: Yeah, when you say that, the first thing that comes to my mind is the fact that everybody in the Kardashian family looks alike. (laughs) And and I actually (laughs) just today, before our conversation, there was some BuzzFeed article, I think, that showed the before and after a decade ago compared to now of all the Kardashian women and the Jenner women. And it's amazing how I thought much more attractive they were a decade ago and how similar they look in their features and their coloring and just the, you know, their skin tone, all of that now, which is um, very hard in some ways to even differentiate them.
1: Well, I think the beauty industry now, I mean, beauty takes on so many different forms of interpretation for consumers these days that you, you know, you probably find that kind of situation. But on the other hand, you will find um, very different kinds of definitions and manifestation of what beauty means to an individual. I think the interpretation of beauty these days is very it's possible to get down to the singular, very personalized interpretation. And I think that's been a real positive for the beauty industry.
0: What kind of longer term impact did working in beauty have on shaping your values and priorities? Because it was while you were in the beauty industry that at some point you decided to pursue another degree.
1: Yes. So I think that for me, this This train that we're on in terms of beauty and having people interpret it the way that they interpret it as an individual um, is something very much that I supported and celebrate in the diversity of the definition of beauty. But equally important to me was finding ways for the beauty uh, industry to make connections to different industries. And One of the industries I think that um, there's a lot of interplay and interaction is beauty and plant-based, non-toxic types of ingredient stories. And after I had left a major beauty company that I worked with for 15 years, I actually really left to pursue how do you market and express beauty from a digital capacity and then from there, actually migrated into well, how can beauty make connections with different industries like an agricultural vertical? And it was when I went back to do some uh, studies and graduate work in sustainability that I came across the topic and industry of hydroponics. And I was really intrigued by hydroponics because I a have never heard about it, and b was fascinated that you could grow vegetables in water and without soil. And from there, I began thinking, well, the beauty industry has used plant extracts for quite a long time. What if I were to source hydroponically grown extracts um, that would contribute to a non-toxic kind of a beauty story for skincare? And um, at the time, this was maybe three years ago, I connected with a good friend of mine, who uh, Renee Ordino, who is a cosmetic uh, chemist and developer by training, and I shared with her the idea. And from there, we began on a journey um, to start up our company, which is Marlowe Hydroponic Skincare.
0: Can you tell us how Marlowe differentiates itself from other skincare products? Are there any other hydroponic skincare products out there? And if not, what are the benefits of hydroponics compared to its alternative?
1: Right. This was a really good question that you asked. Were there other hydroponic skincare products out there? And we did a lot of research on this. And to my amazement, we didn't find any. Um, and to my um, next amazement, um, we were able to trademark the name Hydro- Marlow and specifically the phrase hydroponic skincare. Um, so we began, Marlowe, with the premise that we would formulate with hybr- hydroponically grown tomatoes, which people may know that tomatoes contain lycopene, which is a very powerful antioxidant that has been proven um, to have positive health effects because it, uh, lycopene uh, fights free radicals that can damage your skin. So we began... Uh, investigating and researching hydroponically grown tomatoes and how do you extract the lycopene from these tomatoes um, and then use them to formulate a a cream, a, a skincare cream. And the value in doing that is that hydroponics, when plants are grown in water without soil, there is no chemical fertilizer, there are no chemical pesticides and you're not growing in manure Um, which is a source of uh, fertilizer for organics. uh, So there are no soil impurities. And um, this means that those tomatoes um, have a very high purity and potency level because when you grow hydroponically, plants are fed very high density um, nutrients and they're fed directly to the roots. So there's a very robust growth. So this whole platform of chemical-free, non-toxic, was the beginning for our development strategy for Marlow.
0: Is hydroponic growth also more cost-effective?
1: Well, the initial investment in a hydroponic farm can be very high because you have a system whereby hydroponics actually recycles the water in the system. So there's a lot of um, infrastructure and um, it, infrastructure that has to be built to, to, to support that kind of farming. But when you look at hydroponics, there are some farmers that will say that they use up to 90% less water than a conventional farm, which is uh, pretty amazing when you think about that, uh, particularly uh, in terms of what's happening with water in the sustainable environment. I see. So yes. So yes. In the beginning, the uh, initial investment to get a farm up and working can be expensive. However, over the long term, um, there are uh, very there are very positive environmental um, benefits to hydroponic farming. In addition to using less water, there is a very high productivity um, because when you use hydroponics to grow, you can grow four times the amount of crops that you would in the same amount of space in conventional farming. So, you know, you have a higher uh, productivity uh, level for plant growth and you can grow some crops almost twice as fast as you would in a conventional farm.
0: So you're able to basically scale faster as well. Yeah, And, yes. and we're just curious, like, do climate conditions in, impact or no, because it's indoors?
1: It's indoors. It's greenhouse grown. So, what that means is you can grow year round um, so that the availability of fresh vegetables is un- uninterrupted. It's not seasonal. Um, yeah. So, you can pretty much have your production year round.
0: I see. And on your website, I remember seeing a long list of ingredients, maybe a dozen or more, that are not in Marlow that you identified. And most of those had names that I was unfamiliar with. Can you point out some key ingredients that are not in Marlowe that you think are worthy of mentioning um, that differentiates Marlowe from the crowd and why that's important?
1: Well, a lot of beauty brands um, have gotten on this bandwagon of non-toxic. But I think the ones that you would hear um, the most often and cited the most commonly across brands are paraben-free, silicone-free, synthetic fragrance-free, and phthalate-free. Those are the ones that you know the beauty industry has been notorious for in terms of using in formulation, but there are a lot of brands, good brands out there that are formulating without these things.
0: How has your journey as a founder been informed by your gender, if at all? So in other words, if you started the process of reaching out to potential funders and investors, in what ways do you think their reaction, positive or negative, has been in spite of or because of your sex or gender?
1: Well, I can't say that I can answer that question from a personal interaction experience standpoint. But of course, I've read a lot about female investors and entrepreneurs having a difficult time acquiring um, investments from, you know, angels or Uh, private equity investors. Um, We're not at that stage yet. So I can't speak to any firsthand experience. But I, of of course, have read and heard about a lot about how women entrepreneurs are uh, notoriously underfunded from uh, financial investors.
0: What about when you were in ideation stage, in your due diligence and uh, concept validation? Was there any response or encouragement that was surprising to you?
1: That's a good question. You know, we didn't have any sort of formalized conversations with the intent of having, you know, an investor invest with us. I think that the response about having hydroponic skincare and even um, being able to protect it with a trademark was, you know, the response was, oh, that's interesting. But, you know, I, I found that people who are in the investment community are not really interested in having the conversation, quite honestly until there is revenue generation. Mm
0: -hmm. So there was no values exploration around whether they were personally even invested in making these changes or disruption potentially to the industry around sustainability.
1: No, and I think that that's one thing that is challenging overall for the industry of sustainability or the area of sustainability is that many people are not necessarily well uh, versed in the topic of sustainability uh, or specifically sustainable environments and what that means. Um, So when people don't have a firm grasp of what it is and what the implications are for lifestyle and living and health and nutrition and public health, there's not much of a conversation to be had because, because they're not yet exposed to these issues in sustainability.
0: So, I mean, my limited stereotypes <laughs> and views have been informed by being a consumer of beauty and cosmetics products. And I feel like there's this built-in classism in who has access to "quote-unquote" universal beauty standards and who doesn't. So, for example, in the area of skincare, if I could afford it, I would love to have facials more frequently than once every couple of years, maybe. (laughs) And I would love to be able to use high-end skincare brands or items from brands like La Mer. And yet I feel like there's this, in certain younger facing publications, media publications, there's this ongoing effort to make sure that the average person can still find value in your drugstore products. So how do you think the beauty industry has changed over the course of your career?
1: So I think one of the major um, evolutions for the beauty industry is when I started, beauty was defined and interpreted as to how companies wanted to define beauty for women. And it has evolved in a very positive way to where it is today, where beauty now means and is interpreted by women who use beauty beauty products and how they define what their individual beauty is about.
0: And how are companies uh, identifying these trends and getting consumer feedback? Is this through social media or focus groups or um, their pocketbook? I
1: think... think yeah, I think that social media, you know, has definitely helped to um, to reveal some of these things. I mean, um, beauty companies today are certainly celebrating diversity of models and um, you know lifestyles in a way that didn't happen when I first um, joined the beauty industry. And I think that you know the population of women in and of themselves have been driving a movement to say, hey. You can't define what beauty means to me. I define what it means for me to feel and be beautiful. And I think that that has come with the core of the how women have evolved in society, in addition to how social media has helped to propel that message.
0: I was thinking when you were talking about, I think it was in the 80s, was it the 80s or 90s that RuPaul was a spokesperson for Mac? Is that right? And I felt like
1: that. 90s, I think. Yeah, but don't quote me.
0: Wasn't that like a revolutionary moment?
1: Mac was a phenomenal was a phenomenal brand for for making those kinds of statements. Yes, and and kudos to them because I think that Mac really did break through the quote unquote traditional interpretation of beauty and expression of beauty across a diverse group of women and men you know, in the industry, for sure.
0: And also, it's led us to this moment where I'm sure you've heard that Victoria's Secret has canceled their fashion show, right? Their annual fashion yeah. show. And and I think, I don't know if it was partly informed or largely informed by, I think there was a demand for trans models, and they resisted, and then, then they canceled the show. I may have mm-hmm. my facts wrong, but... But they also recognize it was a moment of acceptance, I think, that their definition of what, quote unquote, Victoria's Secret's angel, you know, it may not be something that consumers relate to anymore.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So what are some trends that you think the beauty industry is being shaped by that are positive and what are some that you think are negative and why?
1: I think that the positives for me are that um, beauty is is very much now affected by lifestyle, health and nutrition. There's a lot of focus on the beauty industry as a lifestyle industry, whereas I think before from from my perspective, at least um, the beauty industry was the beauty industry, but these days you can't talk about beauty without talking about lifestyle. and lifestyle means eating healthy. Being in a healthy environment, exercising. So I think that you know, beauty has evolved into this kind of a hybrid platform, if you will.
0: Are there any negative trends that you've seen the horizon? You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I've
1: really thought that through um, that thoroughly. I've generally been very encouraged by the positives of that, of really wanting to reinforce the healthiness of an individual and, you know, how an individual decides to express beauty in their way.
0: How has your view of beauty towards yourself and your comportment and your, your uh, dress, et cetera, how has that changed over time as well?
1: Well, you know, I'm not in a corporate role anymore. So um, I, I am enjoying not having to get dressed up and, um, get quote unquote made up every day. Um, I think that how I interpret my own lifestyle as it affects beauty is a very natural one with products that are simple, products that are few, products that I don't have to use all that often per se. I still though do believe that a daily uh, regimen of cleansing and moisturizing your skin is very important and using SPF for sure. But I think that sort of my whole, if you're asking me about beauty routine for me now, is very simple, very straightforward.
0: In recent years, I experimented with Korean skincare products, and they are not minimal at all. There's, I don't know if they're like up to maybe eight steps, eight different products that they recommend. Do you feel that given what you just said, do you feel that some of those steps can be reduced as long as the product is the right one.
1: I think probably, but you know that's very much rooted in a cultural cultural belief in a particular beauty regimen. I think that in Asia, you'll see uh, Japan and Korea, you'll see that women wash, tone, wash, tone, apply serum. You know, th- there are many more r- repetitive steps. I I I would say. Um, which is not necessarily saying they're good or bad. It's, It's just that there are many and that when you look at our culture here, it's not necessarily that intensive. Yeah. The formulations and aesthetics of the Korean and Japanese beauty brands are phenomenal, I will say, and they, I'm sure, contribute to efficacy at a certain level.
0: Hmm. So if you had to choose a dream celebrity to endorse your product, who are some of the people you would love to see use it?
1: So I don't believe in celebrity endorsement for my okay. product. Okay. Um, and wh- I I think that, you know, celebrities are great for other brands, but I guess I want my product to be recognized for the staying power that it has in and of itself, in its features and benefits and the value that it brings. As it's rooted in the platform of sustainability, I really don't see my product as a celebrity driven product.
0: For you, success means that people are buying it and using it and it's affecting their lifestyle choices.
1: Yes. I mean, for me, the success in, in Marlowe is A, that people like the product, B, that the product is efficacious and performs on the attributes of anti-aging, which is keeping skin texture smooth, keeping skin moisturized, um, minimizing lines, fine lines and wrinkles, and trying to build the firmness in the skin. Um, That efficacy level is important that consumers feel that with this and see that with this product. And that along the way, they learn about how the formulation and creation of Marlowe came to be of course, I will absolutely want to always put out quality, efficacious product, number one. But equally important to me is being able to use beauty as a platform to educate people about topics and issues in sustainability and why they should not be concerned about that either for the daily products that they use or the environments that they live in and how sustainable issues can impact the quality of life.
0: Would collaborations uh, for Marlowe in the future include those with lifestyle companies or companies that are advancing sustainable packaging, minimalism in living, in consumption?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, uh, with Marlowe at present, we When we developed the product, we said that we are going to strive to partner with partners who had the same belief in sustainability issues. So our carton and jar, because it's glass, is 100% recyclable. Our cap, which is a gold molded cap, because it's molded, it doesn't throw off aerosols or volatile organic compounds, which are also known as VOCs. So wherever possible, we try to use vendors who have sustainability principles in place in doing their business as well. And then the other thing that we try to do is I'm much more interested in our affiliating with partners in other industries um, that share a like-minded approach to educating people about sustainable issues. So for example, one of my classmates is one of the world's most knowledgeable about hydroponics. And he has a consulting practice whereby he will engage clients and, you know, help them get hydroponic farming up and growing in greenhouses and whatnot. And we cross promote each other because we believe that much in in spreading the word about hydroponics.
0: Wow, sounds like there's a a lot of uh, positive opportunities to look forward to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm very optimistic about products that have a statement beyond, you know, um, beyond the nominal value of what you would expect a skincare cream to do, or, you know, a healthy drink to do. I mean, I think there's a a lot of brands have a lot of responsibility to be able to um, educate people beyond what their product delivers by way of how they formulate products or the partners that they engage um, or the vendors that they use in creating their products to help expand a story that's bigger than just the product itself.
0: We haven't talked really about the way in which the beauty industry shapes girls and women's views of beauty and of themselves. And I'm wondering what message you would like Marlo to send to girls and women about beauty and about themselves.
1: Well, first and foremost is that I would like it to reinforce that beauty is however they define beauty to be, that taking care of your body, which includes your skin, is important, and that needs to be um, important in their minds for how they live their life. The third thing is I would would like for, um, and I think this does happen already, Um with the generations that are up and coming to be cognizant about products and what they do on a day-to-day basis and how that can affect their lifestyle and their environment, and to be to be conscious about their product choices.
0: We've arrived at the point of our conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions called the Engendered Questionnaire. My first question to you What is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression?
1: I feel like I've answered the question, and it's not my objective to
0: politicize it. What gives you hope?
1: What gives me hope is that the industry has evolved to a very positive point where both women and men are able to define beauty in however they see their beauty to be. And It is not the objective of our brand, Marlowe, to define what that is for them. What we provide as a brand is a product, efficacious product for them to use so that they can demonstrate and reveal whatever beauty means to them. That's the role of the product that we have brought to market.
0: And final question. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression?
1: I think that what we need to continue to do is to encourage individuals to be tolerant of how other individuals choose to define what's important to them in their daily life and not be judgmental about the choices that people make.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Marjorie.
1: Thank you. It's great being with you, Terry.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Masami, the premium hair care brand with a unique Japanese ocean botanical called Makabu for the ultimate in botanical hydration. You can find Masami online at lovemasami.com and share your hair at Hair on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, or Twitter. And you can listen to this podcast on CastBox. Download it for free and listen to anything. CastBox, the best podcast listening app out there.